Hello, I'm William Henry. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I shall be reading some of the scriptures. And I'm Mike Penny. Now, in this series of podcasts, we are planning to look into the Gospel of Luke, not, not verse by verse, because that would take far too long. But we're going to look at some of the main themes and ideas. Yeah, Luke's an interesting character, isn't he? He's a, mm. he's a doctor. He's a, a traveling companion of Paul's. We read about that in Acts. Paul describes him as the beloved physician. We also know, according to Colossians, that he was with Paul in prison in Rome. I don't think uh, Luke was actually in prison, but he was with Paul there. But it's also interesting that he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. So it's interesting to see his take on the Lord's earthly ministry, because it was really focused on Israel. Of course, by the time Luke is writing, there were a lot of Gentiles coming into the church, again, as recorded in Acts. And not only is he a Gentile, he is writing to a Gentile. Theophilus, a Greek name that means lover of God. And I've got a friend called Theodore. I think that's the Latin equivalent, isn't it? Never mind. Yeah. Anyway, Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, which was also written to Theophilus. Now, Theophilus obviously knew something about the Lord's ministry, because Luke says he's wanting to make Theophilus certain about what he has already heard and been taught. Yes, it's interesting to see how Luke goes about the groundwork for his gospel. He says this in the opening four verses of the gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Yeah, I suppose there must have been a lot of people writing about what Jesus did and said. And Luke doesn't seem to come on the scene until after the Lord's ascension. And it's quite possible that he never even met Jesus. He's taken his material mainly, I think, from the written material that was there and confirmed it with conversations with eyewitnesses. It kind of comes across that he's a very painstaking researcher. He's determined to get things right so that Theophilus will be sure of the truth. Yeah, that's right. But he's just like a modern biographer, isn't he? And you can see how detailed and accurate his work was. For instance, look at the detail in Luke chapter 3. In verses 1 and 2, Luke says the following. In this 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. <laughs> well, what detail there, eh? So dear old Luke spells out not only what was happening in the Roman world at that time, but also what was the situation in the different Jewish regions at that time. So the events recorded in his gospel are rooted in history, and he wants Theophilus to know exactly when they happened so that Theophilus can get the historical context. So then, Luke's a Gentile writing for Gentiles. Do you think that comes through in the way he sets out his material? Yeah, I think so. Um, although Luke records that Jesus went only to the people of Israel, 
he does bring out the fact that the Lord's message is for a much wider range of people, for all, in fact. I mean, for instance, in Luke chapter 4, right at the start of Jesus's ministry, he records how he was nearly murdered by his own people in Nazareth, simply because he pointed out instances from the Old Testament where God had blessed Gentiles, uh, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman. He pointed those out rather than referring to the many occasions when God blessed Jews. Also, it's interesting that Luke's genealogy of Jesus goes right the way back to Adam, while Matthew's genealogy goes back only as far as Abraham and highlights Jesus as son of David and son of Abraham, so emphasizing his link with these key figures in Israel's history. So Luke really highlights blessings to Gentiles right at the beginning. Yes, but not only Gentiles, he's the champion of the outsider generally. For instance, we have parables like the Good Samaritan. We have the parable of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. And then, of course, we have the prodigal son. Also, we have the account of Zacchaeus, a despised tax collector. And you remember the account of the um, healing of the ten lepers? Yet only one came back and said, thank you. Yeah. And he was a Samaritan. Then we have Jesus teaching about the selfish rich who would be excluded from the kingdom, while the poor would be welcomed um, into the kingdom. I think that comes in Luke 6, I think, for example. Yeah, but I think that Luke is also clear that the Lord's main focus was on Israel. This is what Gabriel said to Mary when he came to announce the coming of John. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So Gabriel's announcement focuses on Jesus' role as David's son. Also, I think towards the end, as the disciples squabbled about who would be greatest, he promised them that they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but let's go back to the beginning. Where does Luke begin? Because his account starts earlier than the other Gospels. I mean, it starts earlier even than the birth of Jesus. Yeah, funnily enough, he begins not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. In the opening chapter, Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth, his wife, who are both old and past age for childbearing, they're visited by Gabriel. And Gabriel promised them a son, and the son is to be called John. Gabriel's prediction about John is really important. Listen to this. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Yeah, that's in Luke 1, 16 to 17, isn't it? So John the Baptist is the preparer of the way of the Lord. It's a lovely song about that, but I won't sing it. Well, again, for that. <laughs> again, the focus is on Israel. And note that there is a reference to the prophet Elijah. Yeah, Gabriel was quoting Malachi. Malachi, of course, is the, the last book of the Old Testament. And the final verses of Malachi say this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, 
or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And that's in Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6. So Elijah is to come first. See, the same reference there to turning the hearts of the fathers to their children. That's what Gabriel says in Luke. It's as if Gabriel's kind of picking up where Malachi left off. It really lets us see the link that there is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, do you think John the Baptist was Elijah then? That's a tricky question. I think Luke, who's writing for Gentiles, doesn't go into that question in any detail. But Matthew, which is the Jewish gospel, it does. And basically, Matthew says that if the Jews had accepted John and the Lord, then he would have been Elijah and the kingdom would have been set up then. Yes, I think that's right. I've covered in quite some detail, actually, the question of whether or not John the Baptist was Elijah in my book, John the Baptist, His Life, Teachings and Impact. So John the Baptist certainly came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he was to make ready the people of Israel and prepare them for the Lord. But Zechariah didn't believe Gabriel, did he? No. Uh, Maybe he did not see the parallel between himself and his wife with the aged Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Or if he did see the parable, he did not believe it was possible for him and his wife also. So he asked the angel Gabriel for a sign. So what sign did Gabriel give him? Well... Gabriel's sign was uh, was a bit of a problem, wasn't it? Because Zachariah didn't believe Gabriel, and the sign that he got was that he was struck dumb for his doubts. And it was only when he confirmed that the baby was to be called John that he recovered his speech. So Elizabeth had nine months of peace and quiet, did she? <laughs> okay, so yes. And then when he did eventually start speaking, when he named the baby John, he prophesied in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the focus of that prophecy was on God's redemption of his people, Israel. Listen, listen to this Jewish emphasis in this prophecy. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And that's in Luke 1, verses 68 to 77. Right, so there we've got a Gentile writing to a Gentile, setting John's message in the context of Israel. He speaks of the God of Israel specifically and his people Israel. David's kingdom is referred to as the Old Testament prophets had predicted. Then there's the holy covenant with Abraham, our father. And he speaks of giving his people the knowledge of salvation. But, I mean, how did John eventually do this preparatory work for the Messiah? Well, when he came, he came demanding that people should repent because judgment was coming. And he baptized them as a sign of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. But Luke then references his work, not as Elijah and the quote from Malachi, as we might have expected from what Gabriel had said, but to Isaiah. I mean, Luke 
3, 4 to 6, says this about John. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough waves made smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. And that's it. I think that's a quote from Isaiah 40. Okay, so John came as Isaiah and Malachi had foretold. And the final comment there is that all mankind will see God's salvation. So Gentile Luke sees that God's salvation will reach way beyond Israel. Yes, interesting, isn't it? Matthew's gospel was written for Jews. And in chapter 3, he also quotes Isaiah 40. But he ends the quote before you get to the bit about all mankind. Yeah. yeah. And then it is also interesting that when Christ sent out the 12 on that first trip, Matthew records that the Lord told them, go not into the way of the Gentile or empty any city of the Samaritans. But Luke misses out those words. That's interesting. But he was a Gentile writing to the Gentile. And by the time he wrote towards the end of the Acts of the Apostles, I suspect, the gospel had gone to both Samaritans and the Gentiles, events we can read of in the book of Acts. So then Luke recognizes that the Lord is coming to Israel in fulfillment of all the promises made to the nation in the Old Testament. But he sees that the blessings on the nation will spill over to non-Jews, all mankind, in fact. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, yeah. But John warns the crowd, doesn't he, that they need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. They had to show the genuineness of their repentance by the way they behaved. But Luke warns these Jewish people that they shouldn't rely on their pedigree as physical descendants of Abraham to make them right with God. John says this. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's in Luke 3, verses 8 to 9. Okay, then. So is the Gentile Luke, is he hinting that the true seed or the true children of Abraham could include people who are not Abraham's physical descendants? Yes, it could be. Maybe he was anticipating Paul's comment in Galatians 3, verses 28 to 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So there we've got Gentiles during the Acts period being included in the blessings that belong naturally to Israel. Maybe that is what Paul means in Romans 11 when he, he said the Gentiles of the Acts period were grafted into the olive tree of Israel so partook of its blessings. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, what did John the Baptist want the people of Israel to do then? Well, the crowd asked him that and John gave them some examples. He said, be generous. If you have two cloaks, Share with someone who doesn't have one. Similarly, if you have food, share it. Be honest, he says. Tax collectors were told not to take more than the correct money. 
Be content, he said. Soldiers were to be content with their pay and not extort money from the people. Oh, that's interesting. But that sounds rather similar to what Jesus went on to teach in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But here's, here's an important question. What did John actually have to say about Jesus? Well, people thought that John was the Christ, the coming one, who, of course, was actually Jesus. But John said this. I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat up into his barn, but he will burn up the chuff with unquenchable fire. And that's in Luke 3, verses 16 to 17. Well, John's emphasis is very much on judgment and warning the people um, about the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah would separate the people of Israel into two groups. Those who accepted him which he compared to wheat to be harvested, and those who rejected him, which he compared to chaff, which would be burned up. Yeah, that's right. So the people of Israel are being given a choice there. The one who'd been spoken of in the prophets was coming, and his forerunner was also predicted by the prophets. He was here, that is John the Baptist. And if they accepted their Messiah, he would set up his kingdom and there would be blessing for them. But if they rejected him, then they would be destroyed. Gosh, that, that's a critical time for the people of yeah, Israel. Then. Is, yeah. And we all know that John had a pretty tough time himself. He suffered terribly at the hands of Herod and his wife. Um, and we know in from Luke 3.19, it tells us that John rebuked Herod for marrying his brother's wife, which was against the law of Moses. And he also rebuked him for all the other evil things he had done, which were also against the law of Moses. So John was put in prison and, of course, we all know, subsequently executed. Yeah, he was. OK, so we thought about what John had to say about Jesus. What did Jesus have to say about John? Well, going back, well, sometime after John was thrown in prison, but obviously before he died, his disciples told him everything that Jesus was doing, and John seems to be somewhat puzzled. So he sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question, and that question is recorded in Luke 7.20. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? That's a really strange question, isn't it? I mean, surely John was the one who pointed everyone to Jesus as the coming one. So, so what's happened? Do you think he's got disillusion with being in prison? Do you think Jesus was just different to what he'd expected? Uh, hmm, that's hard to say. Maybe it wasn't so much to do with Jesus as to do with the situation John found himself in. Perhaps John expected the kingdom to be set up more quickly. Um, maybe that was it. And I suspect he hadn't expected to be thrown into prison. But anyway, but let's go back to that question. Jesus answered that question, not by a straight yes, no, but by pointing to the signs and miracles he was doing, which, of course, were fulfillments of messianic prophecies. For example, Luke 7, 22 to 23 is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. This is what the Lord 
told John's disciples in Luke 7, 22 to 23. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Yeah, that's right. I think the, the miracles Jesus did weren't just a show of power for its own sake. They were part of his credentials as Messiah, weren't they? Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets as well had foretold that Messiah would do signs and wonders like that. Right back at the beginning of Luke, when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth, he read from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That's in Luke 4, verses 18 to 19. Yeah, and then he added this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's verse 21. Okay, right, let's go back to this then. You were right, I think. Jesus is Jesus performed miracles to confirm his identity as the Messiah. And, and you may remember in John's gospel, when Jesus was arguing with the Jewish leaders, he told them, if you don't believe me and don't believe what I say, believe the miraculous signs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, what is perhaps more interesting, or certainly is very interesting, is what Jesus said about John after John's two disciples had left and returned to report back to John in prison. Luke states that later on in chapter 7, Jesus says John was not dressed in fine clothes like a prince. So who was he then? This is what Jesus said in Luke 7, 26 to 28. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Right. So that's a quote from Malachi again, isn't it? So Gabriel, when he told Zechariah that he was going to have a son, also described him in terms of the prophecy of Malachi. There in in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel said he was to come in the power and spirit of Elijah, which is as per Malachi chapter 4. Now here in Luke chapter 7, Jesus describes John as God's messenger as per Malachi chapter 3. And in both cases, he's coming before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Yes, it's so important to see that the Lord's coming to earth was in the context of God's purpose for Israel, had it been predicted hundreds of years earlier. The time had finally come, but the issue was, the crunch issue was, would the people of Israel receive him? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? But there's a strange comment at the end of of Luke 7, um, verse Uh, 28, um, which Sylvia just read. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What do you think he meant by that? Oh, God. That's a difficult question, and I'm not sure. But the interesting thing is Jesus taught 
that those who wanted to be great in the kingdom of heaven should be the servant of all. And the disciples regularly seemed to argue about which of them would be the greatest. But Jesus showed them his standards were the opposite of the world's standards. Yeah, that was what the washing of the disciples' feet in John 13 is all about, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And in Luke 7, Jesus seems to be talking to two groups of people. There were those who had acknowledged they were sinners. They had repented and been baptized by John. And there were those, like the Pharisees, who had refused to repent and be baptized. Similarly, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, which is only recorded in Luke's gospel, actually, is another example of Luke championing the outsider, as we mentioned earlier. For it is the tax collector who is justified in God's eyes, not the self-righteous Pharisee. And then Luke goes on to provide an explanation of Christ's comments in the next couple of verses. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptised by John. And that's in Luke 7, 29-30. So John had announced the coming of Jesus as the one foretold in the Old Testament prophets, and he was going to heal the sick and liberate the captives. But John never got liberated himself, did he? No, no, poor John was executed on the orders of Herod. But interestingly, Luke doesn't describe John's death. However, Mark gives all the details. At one of Herod's banquets, his stepdaughter Salome delivered an erotic dance which intoxicated Herod to the extent that he promised her anything she wanted up to half his kingdom. Now, her mother hated John because, as we mentioned early, he had continually pointed out her marriage to Herod was against the law of Moses. So she prompted her daughter Salome to ask for John's head on a plate. And to avoid embarrassing himself in front of his drunken guests, Herod reluctantly gave her what she asked. Yeah, it's horrific, isn't it? It's yeah. Completely pointless. You know, I always think that there are big similarities between John's death and Jesus' death. Yeah? In what respect, Will? Well, um, fundamentally, both of them were innocent and didn't deserve to die. Mm-hmm. Both were condemned to death by someone who knew they were innocent and didn't really want to kill them. That was Herod in one case and Pilate in the other. And both Herod and Pilate gave in to pressures from others. Herod was pressurized by his wife, and he was also pressurized by the promise he'd made in front of his dinner guests. Mm. And Pilate was pressurized by the Jewish crowd. So both of them put their own position and prestige first before justice. And as a result, the innocent men suffered in both cases. Oh, yeah, that, 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 yeah, good points there. But, you know, there's also similarities between the birth of Jesus and the birth of John. Go on, then. OK, right. As we've hinted at, both were in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Both were announced in advance by Gabriel visiting one of the parents. The circumstances of both pregnancies were unusual. John's parents were very elderly and past the time of normal childbirth, just like Abraham and Sarah. And Jesus' mother was very young and a virgin and not yet married. And also both Mary and Zachariah couldn't understand 
what Gabriel had told them. They couldn't understand how it could possibly happen. Right. Okay, well, let's finish there for now, shall we? Next time we'll take a look at Luke's record of the birth of Jesus. So thanks for listening.